Hey, everybody. This is Jeannie Faulkner, and you are listening to Pregnancy, Parenting, and Politics, the podcast where we talk about all of that and then some. For anyone new here, I'm the author of Common Sense Pregnancy, where I give you the inside scoop on how to navigate your pregnancy and prenatal care from my perspective as a labor and delivery nurse, a mother of several kids, and a longtime maternal health advocate. Thank you for finding your way here and joining our conversation. So I uh, took a couple weeks off in August, and so much has happened in the world since then. Uh, That's 2020, isn't it? We've got a lot to talk about. We're just heading into September, and uh, in every year past of my life, kids were heading off to school. This year, everything is different. Some kids are going to school and, you know, we're all waiting to see what kind of effect this will have on their health, their community's health. There are so few protections in place nationally. And, you know, we're worried about COVID-19. We're worried about our kids catching it and spreading it to other family members. Um, You know, and then other kids are starting online or remote learning. Their communities have decided it's just not worth the risk. And, we're waiting to see what that'll do to their mental health, their engagement in learning, and, you know, their lives. It's scary on either side of the back-to-school puzzle this year, or the back-to-childcare or back-to-work puzzle. And for all of you parents out there who are facing this, I applaud you. I can only imagine how hard this decision is. You and your families, your kids' teachers, your children, your pioneers. You are, your pioneers. You are facing and moving ahead in a very different world than anything we've seen before. Now, throughout American history, people have faced unbearable decisions and unbeatable odds and very little knowledge of what lies ahead. Yet, they had enough fortitude and determination and vision to move forward one day at a time into something entirely new. And that's sort of what history is asking all of us to do now. But, you know, maybe especially parents and children. This is a social experiment like nothing we've ever seen. And I keep saying it, but this is a fascinating time to be alive. As I'm recording this, of course, my neighbor, who is an avid sander, of planter boxes and things like that is getting to work. So um, if you hear that, sorry about it, nothing we can do. Um, We have less than 10 weeks to go before election day, November 3rd, 2020. It's kind of a rolling date this year uh, as so many of us are voting by mail. I live in Oregon, which has had vote by mail since 1996. Oregon is actually the first state to conduct a general election totally by mail. I grew up in California, though, and I voted in you know traditional po- polling places where you stood in line and you went in the booth with the little curtain behind you and you stuck a ticket in a voting machine. Um, you marked your ballot, and then when you came out, you popped it into a box. It was, you know, a very private yet social and cultural event. Um, but you had to make sure you could get time off school or work or 
arranged your schedule so that you could accommodate voting on that one single day. And if you didn't have a car, you had to make sure you could get a ride, catch the bus or, you know, walk to the elementary school or community center, wherever your polling place was. And until I moved to Oregon, I didn't really realize anything else existed. Now, Oregon mails you your ballot a few weeks um, and a booklet about all the candidates and the measures you'll be voting on uh, a few weeks before Election Day. And you have time to sit and read and study and, you know, do other research if you want to and think about who and what you want to vote for. Now, a lot of families here do it together. It's a big day when your child's first ballot arrives in the mail and, um, you know, you sit at your table and you mark your ballot and you pop it in the mail or um, what I'm going to do this year, because I don't know what's going to be happening with the U.S. Postal Service is I'm going to just drive it across town to the election office and pop it in the slot there. So voting by, by mail, it's, you know, it's a lot less social, but you have time. And there are no travel or work constraints to figure out. You've you've got plenty of time. It's a system that works. And, you know, we don't have voter fraud. People don't bunch together and line up to work the same voting machines. The only thing that really makes sense now, from my perspective, in the age of coronavirus is for people to continue social distancing and vote by mail. Um. It's exactly the same as voting with an absentee ballot, which millions of people, including overseas military members, that's how they vote. Now, none of us know where we'll be as a country with COVID-19 in November, and uh, it it doesn't look like we're going to be in a healthier spot. We have no way of knowing if it will be safe to go to a polling place, but you can still register to vote if you're not already registered and you can still request an absentee ballot if you're in a state that doesn't do vote by mail. So if you don't know where, when, and how to do that in your state, then I want you to go on over to the website vote411.org. That's V-O-T-E 411.org. And you can get all that information over there. They'll help you register. This is really serious, my friends. We need to be our own pioneers here. We need to make decisions about what values and futures our country will work toward. Um, It's dire. It's scary out there. We need to decide what kind of world our babies will grow up in and what kind of world we're going to parent them in. This is going to be, no lie, one of the biggest decisions of your life and your families. And the decision is this. Will you vote? Will you vote? The only answer to that question, if you want to be on the right side of history, is yes. Yes, I will vote. I will add my voice to the most important election in our country's history. I'm not kidding. Please tell me you're voting, right? Okay, enough said, enough said. This week, we're going to check in with my friend and our regular podcast guest, Chris Beard, who is a certified nurse midwife, and she's been delivering babies for decades in a big city hospital here in Portland, Oregon. We always have a lot to chat about, but we haven't had Chris on the podcast since March when we were just heading into quarantine. So I thought we should hop on the phone and find out what's happening, what it's like for her to work the front lines. 
Um, let's take a real quick break and then we'll call Chris up. Okay, we are back and ready to chat. Chris Beard is a certified nurse midwife, a mother of daughters, and an avid explorer of the Western states. Let's get Chris on the line. Hi, Chris. It's Jeannie. How are you? Hi, Hi, Jeannie. How are you? I'm doing pretty good. It is a Friday afternoon, and I am really grateful that I'm ending the week just chatting with you. How's your day been? My day has been okay. Mm -hmm. I've been puttering around doing little projects. I'm actually on vacation this week, which is uh, much needed. And... um, Yes, I'm doing okay. Okay. Well, um, some of my listeners are going to be new, and they're not going to know that you're a regular on this podcast. So let's ask the first hard question. Who are you, and what do you do? Uh, My name is Chris Beard. I am a nurse midwife. I live in Portland, Oregon, and I work for Kaiser. And you and I have known each other for years and years and years, because back in the day, I was the labor nurse, and you were the midwife. And we used to stay up all night together on the night shift. We certainly did, and I actually think it's been decades. Oh, God, Chris. I know. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> we old. We old. <laughs> we old. In fact, I remember when your last baby was born, and how old is that baby? Uh, she's 20 years old and a junior in college. Thank you very much. And I, well, I remember when that baby was in your belly. Yeah. And I remember when you adopted your girls and your oldest is now what? She just turned 18. And going to college. And going to college. Yeah. Or sort of probably staying for college, but we'll talk about that. Yeah. We will. Yeah. So um, I love getting you on the podcast because you and I go way back and also because you are such a great resource for really reliable information about pregnancy and parenting and midwifery and birth and all the different options that people have. And also because you and I have politics pulsing in our bloodstreams. And I'm talking to you this week um, at the very tail end of the Republican National Convention. And last week was the Democratic National Convention. And you and I are both counting the days until the November 2020 election because we're looking for big change. And I'm wondering, I know you've got things to say about what's been going on this last week. Well, um, as I said a little bit earlier, I am on vacation, so I have not watched anything either last week or this week live, but I do have multiple sources of info. So my current... Um, routine at home, whether or not I'm on vacation or I'm working, is that I get up in the morning, I make myself a real strong cup of joe, and I sit down and listen to Rachel Maddow after I have read Heather Cox Richardson, and I sort of set my tone for the day. So I don't know um, how you fill your political cup, but I will say that for me, I wasn't. I wouldn't consider myself a political person until 2016, 
And with the election of 2016, it became very clear that um, sitting on the sidelines was not going to be an option moving into the future. So the first thing I did was try to find reliable sources of information and figure out where I was going to get my news. And I don't know if you read Heather Cox Richardson, but she is amazing. She is a history professor at, um, I think she is at Boston College, and she writes uh, basically a daily column that synthesizes what's going on in the world and relates it to what has gone on in our history as a country, and it's fascinating and terrifying and grounding. Mm. And then and then I listen to Rachel Maddow. So my my first thing, I guess I will say, is that um, I didn't have strong feelings about who should be the Democratic vice presidential nominee, but when it was Kamala Harris, I felt this lift and this moment of joy and listening to her speak and remembering how she cross-examined various people that have come across the stage in the last year gave me a glimmer of hope that I haven't had in quite a long time. Me too. How'd you, how did you feel about that? Well, I really wanted Kamala Harris. I, 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 she definitely was my very first candidate, you know, during, before the primary, I wanted Kamala Harris. And then when she dropped out, I wanted Elizabeth Warren. But for this particular election, I definitely wanted Kamala Harris as the VP um, because she's a woman of color. She has incredible authority in um, up on the hill. Uh, I like what she stands for. I She's not a perfect candidate. I mean, we don't completely align on everything, but I don't need a perfect candidate. I need a candidate that represents and will work for us. And I feel really strongly that she is the one. Your pup thinks so too, huh? Your pup agrees with me. My, my pup agrees. She's saying Kamala, Kamala all the way. Yeah, 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 yeah. I'm really thrilled. What is really exciting to me, and I hope that this isn't too morbid, but um, I would not be surprised if Joe Biden was just a one-term president. Um, he's pretty old. And um, that would mean that Kamala Harris would be the presumed Democratic candidate four years from now. And that is A-OK with me. I will be thrilled to have her. Then what will that be? 2024? It'll be 2024. And I, I totally agree with you. I think that... She is competent. She is energetic. She's educated. She's experienced. And she's actually really funny. Yeah. And she's a woman and she's a mother. Yeah. She's, she's got what we need right now. We need, I agree. We need a full spectrum revolution that reprioritizes what almost every American that I know really stands for. And um, I know that some of my listeners probably don't align with my politics, but I think you're probably listening to this podcast because most of them do align. And I just cannot see a way that anyone could vote a Republican ticket in this election at all. 
I have friends who are Republicans. I've worked with Republicans a lot. I've advocated and had meetings with uh, Republican you know, members of Congress many times and respected their opinion strongly. But not since 2016. It has been really different, really different. I, I agree. And um, I think that the, you know, what I, what I, what I heard about, although I didn't, I saw some pictures and I, I heard some snippets. Uh, what I heard about this week was deeply disturbing to me that, um, you know, that the Republican Party has just abdicated themselves of responsibility. There's not even a Republican platform. No. They're just saying, we want four more years of this. Yeah. And, you know, my personal opinion is four more years of this is the end of our democracy. Yeah. And I'm, um, so I'm really hoping for a change in November. I think that there is never going to be a perfect candidate. And, you know, I have a, I have young adults in my home and, um, many of their friends were fans of Bernie and they don't think that the Biden Harris ticket goes far enough. And I'm, I'm looking at it as my job as a, as a citizen mm -hmm. and in some ways as a parent to help uh, my daughter's friends understand that this is not the time to seek the perfect candidate. This is not the time to um, do a protest um, do a protest by not voting or by voting for some random third party candidate that in effect, if you don't vote or you vote for someone third party, you're voting for Donald Trump. Yeah. And yeah. you're, you're not only are you voting for Donald Trump, you are voting for the person who is going to destroy Medicaid and social security, who is going to replace Ruth Bader Ginsburg, who's going to drill in the Arctic who's going to destroy every environmental um, safeguard that's left that he hasn't already destroyed and is, is basically going to turn this country into a monarchy. I mean, if you looked at the, I'm sorry, I'm going way off the deep end here, but if you looked at the, um, the lineup for the speakers at the Democratic Convention, it was diverse, it was varied, it was robust, and, you know, it really represented what I believe America is, which is a very diverse country full of people of all different colors, all different um, sexualities, all different walks of life. And if you looked at the Republican lineup, it was full of Donald Trump's children. Yeah. Yeah. And so, um, you know, I, 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 I honestly believe that this is the most important election that I'll ever participate in. Um, and I'm, you know, I'm nearing 60, so I've, I've participated in quite a few elections up to this time. And, you know, it's, it's never been more important than everyone we know coming out to vote. And voting early and voting in person early, if you have that opportunity in your state. I mean, we're lucky in the state of Oregon that we've had vote by mail for decades. And, you know, I, my daughter will be voting in the first presidential election of her lifetime this year, and we will take our ballots down to the office on 6th and Hawthorne and drop them off. Yeah, I will too. I'll drop it directly off at the election office. Yeah. Yeah. 
Well, so yeah, I, I guess I do have big feelings about both of these uh, conventions. Yeah, I do too. So you're a frontline worker. You've been delivering babies. I am. Tell me how this. I've been, been delivering you. babies. Yeah. Well, you know, I've been a midwife for a really long time. This is my 27th year of delivering babies, and I think that I have delivered close to 4,000 babies in my career, which is a lot of babies. That's a lot of babies. And I feel very um, honored that I have had this work, and I feel very committed to doing this work. But I'm going to tell you, being a frontline worker in a pandemic is really stressful, and it's really exhausting. And, you know, patients are stressed and worried. Nursing staff is stressed and worried. I'm stressed and worried. I'm wearing more gear than I've ever worn in my life, except for in the OR. And, you know, I mean, most of the time, in all my years of delivering babies, you know, I wear glasses, so I'm not wearing uh, I'm not wearing a protective shield or a mask. I'm wearing a gown and some gloves, and I am, you know, it's a, birth is a very intimate process, as you well know. Mm-hmm. And these days, I'm going into work. I'm putting on a scrub hat, of which I have a whole wardrobe these days, which is actually one of the fun things. <laughs> I'm putting on an N95 mask. Then over that, I'm putting on a surgical mask. Then over that, I'm putting on a face shield. So I am not recognizable to myself or to any patient. Can you breathe? And I can I can hardly breathe. I can hardly, I mean, I, you have to speak very loudly and clearly for people to understand you through two masks. I, um, you know, you, you have to take all that garb off if you're going to drink or eat, you'd think it would be good for not eating because, you know, labor and delivery is kind of a snack central, but it hasn't oh, yeah. seemed to stop me from eating. But I find myself getting incredibly dehydrated during mm-hmm. a shift because, you know, you can't just dr- take a drink of water. you got to go in your call room, close the door, take off all those things and take your drink of water. Mm-hmm. So it, it, it's the physical part of it is very stressful. And then, you know, just being concerned that, I'm going to get COVID from one of our patients and bring it and home I'm to bring your it girls. Home to my, bring it home to one of my children who has a pre-existing condition mm-hmm. and my elderly mother who lives with us. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that is very frightening to me. And um, so being a frontline worker is pretty stressful these days. And, you know, we're trying to, to be the source of strength for the, for our patients. Mm-hmm. And really for our other staff, because one of the things that has become really clear to me is that this level of stress really strips you to your core. And people that I've worked with for years, I'm seeing that they have some sort of baseline anxiety that I didn't know existed because they covered it pretty well. But the pandemic has revealed um some some anxiety among my coworkers and some sort of bad behavior. Mm. And it's it's been challenging on that level too. I bet. I think it'd be really scary to go to work right now. Really it, scary. It is really scary to go to work right now. Yeah. I would agree. So in addition to all the extra gear that you're wearing, which is hot and heavy. Yeah. And yeah. it affects your skin and your ability to breathe. 
and your ability to see through the shield and glasses and all of that, all of your senses are pretty much messed up and you have to work in the most stressful environment of your career. Yeah, how else is it going? That seems fun. Oh my God. So I'm just trying, you know, I have um, a wonderful caseload of patients in the office and I'm just trying to be, when I'm in the office or when I'm in the hospital, I'm just trying to be fully present for those people who are in front of me and understanding that that I cannot imagine the um, unease and fear of giving birth in a pandemic. Yeah. Of being afraid to come to the hospital and wanting to spend as little time in the hospital as possible and just get your baby home to your own little bubble. Yeah. So I'm just trying to be... Um, I'm trying to be a source of accurate information because we all know that's lacking out there. Mm -hmm. And I'm just trying to be, you know, the calm in the storm so that when I see people, I'm, I'm the calm part of their day. Yeah. Well, we're grateful for that. And I'm not sure um, if your viewers are aware, maybe they are, but, you know, many organizations have had to, really pivot and pirouette in order to continue to provide care for people. And we're doing a lot of care virtually, mm -hmm. like video visits and telephone visits. And I'll be honest, I was very opposed to this for pregnant women because, you know, as a midwife, you're used to putting your hands on people and sitting next to them and looking them in the eye and talking to them about all the things. And surprisingly, having the opportunity to allow people to stay home and still have their visit with their midwife has been a great thing. Hmm. So that is one interesting and unexpected benefit for me. Are you finding that people are getting um, lower intervention care as a result? Well, there's certainly in the office fewer times. And so um, I feel like we're focusing more on what is going on with them. Mm -hmm. And, you, you know, most of the patients that I'm, that I'm quote, seeing virtually are people I know. So, you know, if it's a phone call, I'm picturing their face because I've met them before and we just launch, you know, we're not managing their children in the room or the, um, or any of the equipment that's in the room, you're, we're just sitting down and talking about what's going on right now with the pregnancy. Mm. You know, is your baby moving? Are you having any problems? All of those kind of things. And, you know, so in a way they're getting less interventive care because they're not going to have an erroneous high blood pressure because they just rushed in from not being able to find a parking place and got their blood pressure taken and it was elevated. Mm -hmm. We all know what path that sends you down. Mm -hmm. Yes, um, we do. And, you know, our institution has been using, we had this randomized assigned, either you did a one-hour glucose or a two-hour glucose um, for the diabetes screening. And if you do the two-hour glucose, if your fasting glucose is elevated, you get diagnosed with gestational diabetes. Mm -hmm. But the, the fasting, the definition of elevation for the two-hour fasting is different than the than the definition of elevation for the three hour fasting. So my so when it became COVID, we stopped doing the two hour and we're just doing the one hour. So personally, I think fewer people are being 
um, erroneously diagnosed with gestational diabetes. They're going, if they have an abnormal one hour, they're going on to do the three hour, which is more forgiving mm -hmm. than the two hour. Hmm. That's fascinating. Because, Isn't that interesting? Yeah, because that too puts you on a specific track for a standard of care. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. You're looked at more it just high risk, you, you down. get more interventions, you're in yep. some facilities um, kind of manipulated towards a C-section, just all kinds of issues. Lots and lots of blood draws for your baby. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Lots of NFTs for you, growth ultrasounds, you know, all these things, which if you truly do have diabetes are important, but, you know, there, the lack of standardization between the two hour and the three hour has always been a sticky wicket for me personally. Mm. Hmm. And so if their one hour is um, indicating a problem, then they're not going to be missed. You're going to send them on for the three hour. No, they're going to have the three hour, but yeah. um, we're, you know, we're trying to limit people's time where they have to sit in the hospital. Thank and you. so you would only get a three hour if you needed it. Yeah. Whereas before you would either get the two hour or the one hour and we don't want people sitting in the hospital for two hours. Right. Right. All right. Well, that's pretty interesting. Unless they need it. Yeah. So I think, you know, I think people are probably getting less intervention. And for a time, um, you know, we changed our non-stress test schedule for people. Um, when, when we had uh, at the height of, sort of a lockdown in terms of medical procedures in our, in our um, setting. Mm -hmm. And then I noticed that they changed it back. Mm. So there were some things that people were, were allowed to just have an NFT once a week. Mm -hmm. And I, I, I can't remember the full list, but now they're back to the twice a week NFTs. And I, I kind of wonder why they decided to, if once a week is fine, why would we do two, twice a week? Mm -hmm. hmm. I'm not sure why that happened. I'm not on that committee. So got it. Yeah. What other standards of care are, are you implementing for COVID and birth? What's happening for moms? So what's happening for moms is that um, we are doing a rapid COVID test on anyone who is admitted to the hospital for birth. And if it's a planned C-section or a planned induction, I think that, uh, you know, things change every single day, it seems. And I've been on vacation for two weeks, so it could have changed, but um, the idea is, is that if you have a planned procedure, you have an outpatient COVID test two days before, because those tests usually take 12 to 36 hours to come back, but we do have access to a rapid test, so anybody who gets admitted in labor um, gets a rapid COVID test, and those are usually back within 60 to 90 minutes, hmm. and we have had um, a few um, asymptomatically asymptomatic COVID positive patients. And so in our setting, they get moved to a, um, a negative pressure room and they receive physician care for their labor. And the reason being is that in our setting, the midwives take care of all the normal labors. So in order to minimize the potential exposure for other patients on the floor, um, you know, we have two physicians on the floor. One of the physicians is assigned to that laboring patient. Hmm. So, um, and that seems to me with our, we have fairly low numbers. So I don't think we're depriving, you know, huge numbers of people for 
midwifery care. But um, so if someone's COVID positive, they, you know, the nurses and care providers who go in that room, there's a little ante room. So they put on, you know, all the gear. They go in, they care for the patient. They, the nurse stays in for pretty much the whole labor. She gets a break. I think um, they get they get their breaks, but it's an assigned, you know, it's a planned assigned thing. And it's not just like, oh, why don't you take your lunch break now? It's more like you're going to take your lunch break at two and Susan's going to come cover for you. So it, they have one nurse. They have one physician. For and their, they go for in their and out of that labor or just for their shift? For that shift. Okay. For that shift. Okay. So they aren't, you know, they're not staying 24 hours. So, and then when their baby is born, they are wearing a mask. And in our setting, the pediatricians are supportive of skin to skin and breastfeeding and the baby staying with the mom. Mm-hmm. Good. So, and then when they go to postpartum, we have a couple of negative pressure rooms in postpartum as well. And the same, you know, uh, clean gown and clean gear for each person who goes in the room and then dispose of those things. How much labor support can they have? One person? Well, they can have their one person and we're not, um, we're not COVID testing support people. So if your COVID test is negative, you may remove your mask in the room, but we ask your support person to keep their mask on because we're not testing that person. Mm-hmm. If you're COVID positive, we want you to keep your mask on, which seems horrible, but it's really for the safety of the staff. Yeah. Yeah. Who are then going to go on and take care of other patients with families. I mean, it could be a super spreading experience if you guys didn't do it right. It could be. Yeah. Do you have enough so, equipment? Safety equipment? Um, well, yes and no. I mean, I feel like, um, you know, remember back in the days of HIV when universal precautions were first implemented mm-hmm. and um, we all, you know, wore gloves and mask and gown and all the things mm-hmm. for any event that could potentially expose us to HIV. Yeah. I feel like our institutions and not just my institution, but you know, the CDC is not really looking out for healthcare providers. I mean, they keep shifting their recommendations based, and I believe it's based on how much PPE there is. We don't have enough PPE. I mean, really, I should have a I should have an N95 for every shift that I work. I have an N95 that I wear until it's done. And then I can get a new one. Remember back in the day when we used to switch out masks and gloves all the time? We just, you know, you, there was plenty of stacks and things. It was actually kind of wasteful. I mean, we all had to kind of consider the ecological footprint we were leaving as healthcare workers. And a few things changed. But back in the day, we used what we needed and it was all there and plenty. And I feel like um, there, are some, there are some ways in which it is good to have less PPE because you really do think, do I need to do an exam? Do I need a sterile glove for this exam? Do I need to wear gloves? Right. I think that's important. Mm -hmm. But I also feel like, you know, many of the decisions that are being made way up above my pay grade, not necessarily by my organization, but by people, you know, at higher levels are being made to keep me working and not necessarily to keep me safe. Yeah. And I would say that for any healthcare provider, 
because they're they're fluid about what is acceptable. You know, this is a this is a contagious virus, and you know what what you need to protect yourself seems pretty clear, but they keep changing. You know what's acceptable. Yeah. Just this week, testing standards saying that we didn't need to test asymptomatic asymptomatic people. And then there was so much public outcry about that, not just public, but also from, you know, medical authorities that they said, oh, okay, sorry, we take it back. We'll we'll go back. Yeah. So science right now is based on outcry or political will. Well, it's it's really... um... You know, it really boils down to, you know, a pandemic was going to come. We knew that. Pandemics come across the planet, you know, periodically. And it really didn't have to be this way. If we'd had leadership from the top that listened to science, we would not be in this boat. Yeah. And, you know, that is what is really hard. When, when you called and said, let's talk again, I was like, God, when was the last time I talked to Janie? Oh, in March right before this was exploding, right before things really took off. And if we could rewind the clock and do it right at that point, just think what a different position we'd be in. I mean, the virus is not political. The virus doesn't care if you're a Democrat or Republican, if you get hot wearing a mask and you're mad, or if you're not going to wear one for your freedom or because you think wearing one means you're afraid, you know, the virus doesn't care. It's a biological entity. And if we'd had someone who wanted to listen to science from the beginning in charge, I don't think we would be where we are. What do you think? We would not have been. Yeah, this is an anomaly in in certainly my history and yours. I've never seen this lack of leadership it's it's not just a lack of leadership. It is malevolent. It's It seems intentionally harmful. And it's frightening, which is why, you know, we sort of circle back around to our best hope right now is changing um, this administration in November. Well, actually in January. The vote is in November but we wouldn't be making a change in administration until January. Scary times. So so what? how is your mental health holding up on all of this? So I, I have to say that um, I am really trying to take care of myself and I'm really trying to take care of my family and that is not easy. I mean, I, I have, I definitely am short with my kids and short with my mom and other members of my family and it's, it's stress. Um, so what I do, and you know this well, it, what I do for my mental health is I go camping and I go into nature Mm -hmm. and I have been very lucky that we live in a beautiful state that is huge and there are many opportunities to go places where there are not crowds and where you can social distance. And, you know, I have a camper that is fully self-contained. So, um, you know, we have a hand-washing station and a portable toilet and we can go wherever we want to go. 
And so this summer we've been on multiple trips. And I think that is what is keeping me sane is, you know, finding the solace in nature that I always have. Mm -hmm. And I, I feel like that is what's keeping my mental health um, stable. Yeah. Not to say that I haven't had my dips, but I feel like that is what I, that is the, the cure for me. Yeah. It always has been. It always has been. You're the Western Explorer. I am the Western Explorer. And the other thing that I've been doing is, um, you know, I'm kind of a crafty girl. So um, I don't watch much TV. In fact, I don't watch TV at all. I I do watch occasional movies. But um, so when I'm listening to music or listening to podcasts or talking on the phone, I'm either knitting or sewing. So I have knit. I probably knit 10 pairs of socks since the pandemic started. And it gives me great pleasure to just put them in an envelope to someone and send them as a surprise gift. So right now I'm working on a pair of socks that I'm going to send to an old boyfriend who lives in Colorado. And I finished the ones for his wife uh, like a week ago. (laughs) So I want to send them both together. And I have sent them to like my old roommates, people I used to work with. Um, and it's, it's pretty fun. And they're, they're just interesting enough to keep you thinking, but mindless enough that you could just do it while you're doing other things. Yeah. So that's what I've been doing is I've been trying to do something creative as well. Going to nature and trying to be creative has kept me sane. What do you do for your mental health? Well, I, um, you know, I was a swimmer. And so, you know, back in the before times, my mental health practices were pretty much uh, morning uh, meditation and a good long swim most days of the week. But I'm not swimming now. It's gross at the gym and I'm not going to the pool. So I'm walking and um, it doesn't give me the same level of physical exertion that a swim does, but it's what I can do from here. And, uh, I still meditate once or twice a day that I really, really depend on. And, um, then I am doing a lot of acceptance that I get cranky sometimes (laughs) I get tired and I need extra sleep sometimes. And sometimes Mm -hmm. this lovely family that I am quarantined with whom I love beyond reason, sometimes I am just, um, in no mood, (laughs) you know? And I'm accepting that. That sounds sounds very healthy. And the unhealthy side of this, actually, it's not unhealthy. I'm enjoying it thoroughly, is I bake. So Ah. this weekend, I am, I try to do some like, you know, project bake, like make bread or make a cake or make a a pie out of some seasonal fruit most weekends. Um, And this weekend's going to be a really good chocolate cake with a milk chocolate caramel frosting. Bon Appetit's recipe. It's incredible. Yeah. And the, my other major hobby is I go out every weekend and I look for birds. I'm a birder. Cool. Yeah. I can't identify them. I don't look them up in books. I just go and I look at them. That makes me ridiculously happy. And here, um, you know, in Portland, Oregon, we can just drive 10 miles outside of town and we can be at a nature preserve where we'll find, you know, a dozen eagles it's it's easy around here to do that so i take advantage it of that. is easy around here yeah yeah we're lucky well chris you and i have been on the phone for a while 
And I want to let listeners know that Chris has agreed to be a regular monthly guest. So we will have lots and lots to talk about. Um, Coming up, next time we talk, I want to talk about momming adult daughters, especially when they're home from college. And, you know, next month, probably your daughter will have started. And we can talk about that. She started this week, so I should have lots of information next time. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I'm glad you're well. Thank you for doing your work in the world. Appreciate it. You're welcome. And, you know, I I look forward to being a regular guest. I love being on your podcast. And we always have the most interesting conversations. I know. And listeners really like them. They're really informative. And um, you are one of the few care providers that I know who can really connect the dots between pregnancy, parenting, and politics. So it's great. Thanks, Chris. You're welcome, Jeannie. That's it for this week, everybody. We want to thank our sponsors, BetterHelp.com and our guest, Chris Beard. You can find me over at GeneGartner.com. You can email me your questions and comments Gene at Gene Faulkner. You can tweet me at Gene Faulkner. Yes, I will spell my name J E A N N E F A U L K N E R dot com. You can find us on Facebook and Instagram at Pregnancy Parenting and Politics. Pregnancy Parenting and Politics is produced by Recluse Records. Let's talk next week. Bye bye.